Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for, for Boom. Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 On today's episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Mei Liu, who works at Intuitive Surgical, and she will talk about her experience and her current role, as well as some career advice that she has encountered along the way. But first, a bit of boom. 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 Today's article is from the Journal of Biomechanics. It's titled Muscle Force Estimation in Clinical Gait Analysis Using Antibody and Open Sim by Ursula Trindler and her colleagues at the School of Health Science in the UK and uh, at the Andreas Wensensen Research Institute in Germany. Um, and basically, uh, this, so this is a 2019 uh, journal article, I think, um, so March 2019, and they seek to compare muscle forces from two different musculoskeletal modeling environments, antibody and open sim. Um, and this is really important since a variety of musculoskeletal models are applied in different modeling environments to estimate muscle forces during gait and other, um, and other functional movements. But the, there is an effect of, of different modeling assumptions and approaches on model outputs that we still don't really understand. And there's rarely like direct comparisons between different modeling approaches. Um, typically people, you know, will just pick one and kind of report the results on that. But often there isn't like using both and, and comparing the results from it. Oh, so how did they actually compare? What things did they look at? So they used um, the experiment where people walking and so they used the motion capture measurements, um, basically ran the simulation in antibody and open sim, and then compared joint kinematics, joint kinetics, and then the estimated muscle forces. Oh, cool. So did they find anything like surprising or different between them? Yeah, so they found that there were substantial differences during some phases of the gait cycle regarding muscle force estimations between the two different um, musculoskeletal modeling approaches. So this highlights the importance of carefully picking what simulation you're going to be using and how you're interpreting the results and really question um, the applicability of models for gait analysis. But there, there was an interesting find that um, they both had very similar muscle force activation patterns. So huh. not necessarily the same muscle forces, but similar activation patterns. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I just thought it was really a good study to see how important it is to compare different models. Yeah. Um, In a systematic way that, like, really highlights, like, the different features of each one. and Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's hard to know, though, still why... The differences occur right oh, so like you can you can see where they're different but it is hard to know like with muscle forces because you can't really measure have like a ground truth for internal right. muscle forces so you're like you can report the differences between them but then you really have to think about the assumptions the models are making and why that might affect the muscle forces and you can't really use ground truth data to understand, to understand. why yeah that's it's so hard right like all we can do is these Kind of thorough comparisons and um, try to see how, like, how it's important to see where they're similar, right? Because maybe that gives some strength to. Right. And you can use them, you know, different if different uh, studies look at different aspects. Like, so another study by Sandholm et al. in uh, 2011, they compared the two different anatomical knee joints and then those influence on kinematics, muscle activations, and joint reaction forces during walking. So kind of looking at different oh, cool. musculoskeletal geometry effects simulations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's definitely important to think about what you are looking at specifically and then how the assumptions of a particular model will affect that. Like that. 
That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I feel like that exactly is the point of a lot of scientific teaching is that like really know what your question is so that right. you can pick the appropriate tools to answer it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we have a little something extra special before our interview. Uh, we have a little boop for you, which is uh, biomechanics on our poetry. <laughs> That's where we like our biomechanics sometimes. <laughs> so um, Hannah's going to read a little clip of um, this part of this poem that we found that used like they use the scientific t- muscle names in the poem which um, I found very inspiring to be able to use biomechanics in a beautiful poem. Yeah, it just rolls off the tongue. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Sharon Olds writes um, really beautiful odes to different things, and she she writes odes to almost taboo topics as well um, and things that people don't generally write odes about, but this one was about how her legs are Unmatching, like two different sizes. The The unmatching unmatching legs legs ode. ode. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, well, here we ode. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so here's an excerpt from Unmatching Legs Ode by Sharon Olds. When I was a new matron, I thought that the blue-green line down my inner calf, the great saphenous vein, was a Nile beauty mark, and the way it rose when I was carrying my first young There was something cool in how it fit between the ledges of the gastrocnemius and soleus, like a snake between two strata of rock. End excerpt. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want to read the whole poem, you can search Unmatching Legs Ode by Sharon Olds online. Yeah, and that was really Melissa that found that, so thank you for bringing that bit of yeah, I was listening. Yeah, <laughs> I was listening boop. to a podcast she was on, and she read the whole thing, and when she said gastrocnemius and soleus, I was like, whoa, I've never seen gastrocnemius in a poem before. That's pretty cool. <laughs> That's amazing. I wonder how many people reading that poem know what the gastrocnemius is. Yeah, I just feel like it's inspiring. Like, yeah. Also, muscles are so cool. Yeah. Also, today I learned that the word facts... Is not that's an abbreviation of the actual word. What? Right? Didn't you what think that was the word? What do you mean of the, the actual word? word? Factual? It's factsimal. Wait. That factsimal is not a word. Factsimal? Facsimile. 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 That's the real word for facts. I disagree. Right? Who that knew that? Is incorrect. Yeah. And I just another lab mate, thank gosh, was like also didn't know this, but everyone else did know this. They and they thought it was silly that I didn't know that fax wasn't a word. It was this is the word. <laughs> I was like, I think it's absurd that? that they did know right? that. <laughs> I was like, I've never seen this word in my life. Facsimile. Facsimile. Okay. So now you learn that everyone. There's another. <laughs> if you well, want to I was listening to somebody in. talk and they were abbreviating attention as attention, and that's like. I don't, that's not really the same as this situation, but it really made me laugh. He was like, yeah, you know, I like a tench. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Now for our interview with May Lou. So with us on Boom right now is May Lou. She's a principal medical research scientist at Intuitive Surgical. Thanks for being with us today, May. I'm so excited. Thank you. We're so so excited excited. to have you. (laughs) So what made you want to be a biomechanist? Yes. um, I can remember that moment with incredible clarity. So this was way back when I was in high school. So it would have been around 1992, 1993. And I was a junior and I was taking an anatomy and physiology class. And we had a fantastic teacher, and I remember he showed us a video, and it must have been from 60, you know, a clip from 60 Minutes or Dateline or some kind of news show that uh, showed a man who was paralyzed in all four limbs. So he was a quadriplegic, and he was able to move his hand because of electrodes that had been implanted, and he was able to control those with the minimal neck muscles uh, that he had left and he was able to feed himself and groom himself and at that moment I said 
that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to, I want to do something that amazing that helps people in some way that uses technology for good. And so I said, um, where are they doing that? And and they were doing that at Case Western Reserve. So I said, well, that's where I want to go to school. What department? Biomedical engineering? Okay, then that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. And did you do that? And I did. So I studied functional electrical stimulation for my undergrad. And my um, senior project was around using functional electrical stimulation to help people walk who uh, who were paraplegic. So, and then after that... um, I, I decided to go to grad school, and that's how I ended up in, in biomechanics in grad school, too. Wow. I feel like so few people actually, like, see what they want to do and, like, actually fully follow it. I feel like that's the mark of a true calling. Well, well but then I deviated. I don't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but I think that, you know, all you can know in the moment is that, you know, is, like, the next step. You can't ever really know what's going to mm-hmm. be five steps after. All you can know is, like, what is the thing that feels most authentic now yeah. and go for it. Yeah. That's great advice. Yeah, that is great advice. And I feel like knowing that puts a little less pressure on the having to have some final, like... For sure. I mean, and it took me a long time to realize that, but um, I was... Uh, well, I, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but um, I was talking to a graduate student from Stanford a few weeks ago and the question of like, should I or shouldn't I? Like, should I get the PhD or shouldn't I? Should I or shouldn't Mm -hmm. I? And it's like, you're not, you're not going to make a bad decision. It's going to be fine either way. If you, if you get your master's and go off, you're going to go in one trajectory. If you stick around and get your PhD, you're going to go in another trajectory. And chances are both are going to be great. You just, it just depends on which one you are drawn to and that you choose. You can't really go wrong, I think. So that's my advice. That's a great point and awesome advice. So in your current role now, can you talk a little bit about um, what you do there? We saw, Mm -hmm. um, we read a little bit about how you explore approaches for training surgeons Mm -hmm. and surgical teams to use cutting cutting edge technologies. Um, it just sounds like a really interesting yeah. um, role that you have there. So I'm super flattered that you invited me onto biomechanics podcast because I, <laughs> I don't even, on the one hand, I don't even really think I do biomechanics anymore. <laughs> on the other hand, I don't even know how people define biomechanics anymore. So, very broad. So, yeah. I mean, I think that um, a lot of the work I do starts to verge a little bit into human factors which Mm -hmm. is close to biomechanics, but to back it up, so uh, Intuitive Surgical makes the Da Vinci Surgical System, which is a medical device that provides robotic-assisted surgical technology for minimally invasive surgery. So you can can look it up if you want to see the device itself, but um, it's it's an amazing piece of technology, but you still have to learn how to use it, and surgeons have to learn how to use it efficiently and safely and effectively. So a lot of the research that I started off doing at Intuitive when I started there nine years ago was really to look into how do we quantify that? What does it mean to um, to use this well? And how do, how do we measure the effects of training? And then as I've been at the company longer, I've expanded that scope into how do we look at teams? How do we look at people who are um, assisting the surgeon, and how do we evaluate teamwork? Now, as the company's gotten bigger, you know, the, like our human factors department has gotten bigger, and other other groups have kind of grown up to fill in a lot of the spaces that I used to work in, which is fantastic. Um, but that was the genesis of my work at Intuitive. I started there. Um, I actually was able to leverage my simulation experience that I'd had in grad school. So I was in the neuromuscular biomechanics lab here at Stanford, and I know you've had Professor Delp and a few other alum from that lab Mm -hmm. on the show. So I was building simulations using OpenSim and all that. So I was able to leverage that when I went to interview at Intuitive because they were releasing, getting ready to release um, what would become a surgical skills trainer in simulation. So I was able to talk intelligently about simulation, even though it was a completely different kind of simulation. But I yeah. still knew more than most people about simulation. And so I was able to pivot 
into that area. And that's what got me started down the road of um, assessing technical skill for surgeons. Wow. Wow. That's, it's really amazing how you were able to pivot that skill set, I think. Um, it was pretty amazing, actually. I'm, pre- I'm, I'm really lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's kind of like, I don't know, a magic trick. You can just like pull it out of your back pocket. Well, um, I'll tell you, I was looking for jobs in the aftermath of the Great Recession. So I was oh, looking wow. for a job around 2000. I graduated in 2009, and it took me 18 months to find a job. Wow. So it was rough going. And I had interviewed for a different job at Intuitive and didn't get it. And when, man, I like bombed that interview so hard, it's like I shouldn't have gotten it. It was good. <laughs> I, I was just like, oh my gosh, I screwed that up really bad. <laughs> but um, but then they, they had this other position that they brought me back to interview for, and I got it. Uh, it was a marketing position. Whoa. Isn't that wild? Uh, yeah. Um, that's, that's one crazy. of the things that I think. Um, I think one of the mysteries of industry when you're in grad school is just not really knowing what it is besides this black box of Mm -hmm. like, there's academia and then there's this unknown void of industry and people disappear into there. And that's all you know. Um, But when I was talking to people and networking and I was saying, well, what I really like to do, because what I would really loved about one of the many things that I'd really loved about my graduate work was I like knowing what problems people need solved like talking to surgeons and finding out like wh- how can our simulations help you and what you know what kind of decisions do you need to make in order to help treat your patients better um, and in industry at least in med device that actually falls under marketing for the most part whoa Yes. <laughs> now, I didn't stay in that role for very long because uh, the woman who hired me, who was really good at marketing, ended up leaving the company long, uh, not long after I joined. But then I pivoted, was able to take the work that I did that first year in the marketing position and, and pivot again internally to research. So I told my new manager, I'm like, look, Clearly, I don't know much about this marketing stuff. <laughs> let's, let's be honest. Clearly, I don't know much about this marketing stuff, but all the work we're doing to do all the data capture to validate this new simulator, we could be doing that in other parts of our training org as well. Yeah. We could be looking at other ways to help with assessment and feedback. And that's how I kind of took off into that career trajectory. Yeah. You were, you were able to find the need within your own company yes. for... Um, yeah, for the skills that you have and how and what you've learned, which is yeah. which is amazing. Yeah. Um, so we um, so thank you for sharing all that. Um, we did a little research on your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And had some fun. Um, yeah, it was really colorful. We were I so inspired. <laughs> we were just like one um, for for our listeners that don't have access to a computer. Um, your uh, May's LinkedIn, her cover photo actually has um, this amazing quote. It looks like a fortune. Is it that is, an actual it's a, fortune? It's, a, it's from an actual fortune cookie that I got, and that fortune is taped to my monitor at work. Wow. <laughs> wow. So you look at this every day? Every day. Okay. I have a fortune taped to my dashboard in my car, actually. Sometimes you just connect with them. Yes. Wow. <laughs> okay. Would you like to tell us what your fortune on uh, your monitor says? I think it's. I think it says you never hesitate to tackle the hardest problems. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's inspiration sometimes when I feel like I'm dragging. It's like the thing that I've really started saying in meetings when people start to get discouraged. It's like, hey, if this were easy, it would have been done by now. Yeah. You know. So it's like. Yeah, we, we do the hard stuff. And just because it's hard doesn't mean it can't be done. So, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So, so I guess in, that kind of leads to one of the questions we had about, about that quote. And it's like, I guess that's how you motivate other people. But how do you motivate yourself um, to tackle the hard yeah. problems? <laughs> um, that's such a good question. Um, and I, it really, I think it ebbs and flows for me. I've really learned over the years to understand how to sort of engage my creative, thoughtful mind 
and and also to realize like when that artistic it's like an art it's like your the gift that you bring of analysis or creativity or study design it's um sometimes it's hard to catch and so sometimes i just have to grind until it until i'm like ah there's there there it is there's the hypothesis that we need to test mm-hmm. there's the study design that we need to have there's the data type we need to get mm-hmm. um and the motivation always has to be the same reason that i got into biomechanics in the first place which is like hey there's people out there who need our help i think it i was listening to some of your past episodes and i think it was brian davis who said he told his students like patients are waiting patients are waiting and it's yeah. the same thing in the med med device industry surgeons are waiting um so get it done that said um i'm Sometimes my execution is really slow. <laughs> I took a strength. You may have heard of the strengths finder test. Oh, yeah. And um, I score really high in some of the things like um, ideation and and formulating plans and things like and like analysis. And I score really low in execution, which is probably why it took me way too long to get my PhD done. <laughs> it's like it all comes together. It's like, oh, I get it. This, light just, this is just yeah. this is my talent. <laughs> well, it's great that you're able to recognize that. And yeah. then in your current work, you know, really use your strengths. Absolutely. To, yeah. Absolutely. I, I find myself in a role now where I'm doing a bit less hands-on of mm-hmm. the actual doing, but I'm more helping other teams figure out what it is they want to do and how they're going to measure it and then to come back and help them with the analysis. But the actual doing, uh, I don't do so much anymore. <laughs> and it's, and it, it, uh, it's a win-win because... I'm just not the best at getting it done anyways. So it's better for someone else to do it. Yeah. I think that that was one of the things about industry. I was As I was driving over here from work, I was kind of reflecting on like, well, because people always ask, like, well, what's the difference between industry and academia and things like that? And um, certainly the difference, I think, a difference between industry and getting your Ph.D., is you know, for your PhD, you're becoming this deep subject matter expert and you know everything there is to know about this topic that you're working on and you, you, you've done the whole thing yourself, which is amazing. And you have this pride of ownership and pride of deep expertise, which is so cool. And the, in industry, you have teams and so you don't have to do it all yourself. And in fact, yeah. no one can do it all themselves at the kind of scale when you're trying to make a product, much less a regulated one. And so you have the pride of like, wow, we have an amazing team. Like we each are bringing our own thing. And I don't have to worry about all that other stuff because there's other people who are handling that. Um, and you can just bring your thing. And then it all comes together in this like stressful magic. <laughs> um, and it's cool. Wow. That's wow. great. Um, you also mentioned on your profile that the gray areas are where mm. you thrive. And you've kind of talked about this a bit, really mm-hmm. being able to find um, find the holes, but also maybe where some disciplines overlap. And we we're wondering what your favorite gray problem mm. has been. That's such a good question. I really do get drawn to the gray areas because that's where the hard stuff is. I mean, that's where biomechanics is. It's in these overlaps of like, well, is it biology? Is it engineering? But clearly there's an overlap. And where do we, how do we sort that out? And how do we communicate? So um, my favorite gray area. You can do favorite or least favorite. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, one one of the things that has been really um, exciting for me as a sort of a professional, like not even professional growth, but just sort of learning experience on my career is that a couple years ago, I worked on a project with our human resources department. It had nothing to do with bio anything. It had to do with leadership skills assessment because mm-hmm. like, how do we know if our leaders are um, proficient? And so I was asked to help with this project because I have 
expertise and I've developed a reputation within the company for knowing how to write surveys because I had to learn how to do that for some earlier projects. So I helped build this questionnaire and this really, what to me feels like this gray area of trying to quantify this almost personal characteristic of like, what does it mean to be a good leader? How would you know if someone's a good leader? How do you measure that? Um, and it was really, really interesting. So there's just gray areas everywhere. Like anywhere there's not an answer is gray. Yeah. Yeah. That, for some reason, that just reminded me of like this, um, this initiative in the design school here mm -hmm. where they created like a puzzle bus, um, which is like, you know, you've heard of escape rooms and things oh, yeah, like yeah. that. So it's like essentially a mobile escape room that they took to schools to assess kids on these qualitative aspects like mm -hmm. teamwork, collaboration, um, listening to others, things that you, it's hard to quantify with, like, how do you, how do you quantify that other than like just through qualitative observation? And so with this yeah. like puzzle bus, they were able to do that. Um, and it's almost like you need one of those for industry for figuring uh, we could out. could put all of our executives into a in puzzle bus room. and see if we can get out. <laughs> yeah. I will suggest that to our HR department. So, you know. But, um, but yeah, it's that fun. Um, it's that fun creative ability, I feel like, that you mm -hmm. mentioned earlier and being able to come at problems with your skill sets and think of them in different ways. And, yeah. um, and building, like, like you said, you had developed surveys earlier in um, your career and like I think being able to draw on those skill sets and never think of anything as like wasted time really um, exactly is huge yeah and I think I was thinking again on the drive over about skill sets and um, I think one of the hardest things that I've seen for uh, especially graduate students who are trying to move into industry if they're coming out of a, a BME or biomechanics program is identifying the skills that are applicable yeah. and I had the same thing and it's really because a lot of this our strongest skills that we bring are what you might call soft skills it's the ability to identify problems it's the ability to come up with rigorous like engineering analytical approaches to anything. And that's where I think the biomechanics part is what kind of sets this discipline off from traditional engineering or traditional biology. One of the things that I loved best about my biomedical engineering undergrad program was like, oh my gosh, we can use circuit theory to model cell membranes or, you know, yeah. spring mass dampers to model muscles so to just be able to apply these basic models of where you can have a pretty you know you can analytically model them to anything so I think that that is this really intangible skill set that biomechanics does bring that is that just really has pushed people who are in the field to just think very differently but it's um it's hard to put that on your resume yeah. <laughs> so it's it's hard. We would endorse you on LinkedIn for that skill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very well said. Um, is do you think that's really where your interview has to kind of come in to supplement that? I don't know. If you're interviewing, if you're trying to move into industry, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's uh, it's gonna. I, 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 I didn't believe it when I started looking for a job in industry, but it's true. It's networking. Everyone hates it. Everyone thinks that it must apply to everyone except for themselves. Um, they're like, well, that's probably good for someone else, but I have this rock star resume. And it's like, no, these days it's, it's really going to, especially if you're trying to get into a very competitive company where a lot of people are trying to go, it's going to be networking. And yeah. then it's, it's going to be those soft skills and the ability to communicate like your passion and your enthusiasm and what you love. And that's going to be the type of thing where someone's going to be like, huh, I could work next to this person for five years or more because that's what we're hiring. We're, we're hiring colleagues. Like, do yeah. I want to, like, this person may be brilliant, but oh my gosh, they're driving me nuts. <laughs> like, I don't want to work next to that person. Yeah. So the the informational interview or the formal interview is really where to to let yourself shine. Thank you. That's a good tip. Yeah. And 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 um, 
you can edit this out if you don't want it. But this is this is my own personal <laughs> this is my own personal thing. Like my my soapbox that I get on is be thoughtful of the resume you're sending out. If you're going to be sending resumes to people, um, be thoughtful if they want your CV or a resume. Because if they even want it. Yeah, like yeah. I, it's that that what you hear about people spending five seconds on a resume is absolutely true. Yeah, and if I'm like scrolling through eleven pages <laughs> yeah. of an academic CV, I'm like, what? What is this person about? Yeah. Do they even know? Like they they just I'm like, what am I supposed to do with all this information? Mm. Um, mm. So, I would suggest having both, have your academic CV, mm-hmm. and then have no more than a two-page resume. My resume is one page. I just slashed and hacked and condensed it down to one page that still has a lot of white space because it's just an introduction. It's not the whole thing. Yeah. It's, yeah. Enough to get you, it's yeah. enough to get you a call of curiosity, like, oh, tell me more. Uh, not like, oh, tell me about that random public- publication that I don't <laughs> even know what it means because it's not relevant to this job. Yeah. Um, and that one page you still tailor to you would tailor to different companies depending on yeah position very cool yeah that is really cool it's almost like it's like you're handing in your um a a report from everything you did in your phd to someone and just saying you figure out what was important (laughs) exactly that's what that's what the long that's what the long one feels like i'm like I don't, is there anything in this thesis that's relevant to the job that you want to do? I, I don't know. Yeah. And that's where, that's where you're going to get into trouble. Yeah. Um, not being able to articulate the skills that you used. Um, the other thing that I found was really useful, again, when I was job hunting, I used to have a two-page, like, super dense resume because I just used small font, and I was just, like, cramming everything in. Might be guilty of um, I was like, look, it's only two pages. You can't read it, but it's only two pages. Once I switched to the one-pager, I could use it as a, a point of conversation with the recruiter. Mm-hmm. So if I went to a job fair, I could I could hold it up and be like and I could point to items on it and be like look here I did this and in this class I did this and da 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 rather than like this blinding small print right (laughs) do you have your resume anywhere to look at or how did you or there examples that you thought or is this just something that kind of happened naturally I read a book as man it was desperate times it was 18 months (laughs) trying to find a job um, and I read this book, I think, and it, I mean, now it's, gosh, 10 or 12 years old, but I think it was called, like, What Do You Have to Do to Get a Job Around Here? Or something like that. And she, and, and she really, the author really advocated for this one page where she's like, it's a billboard, not a memoir. Yeah. You know, it's enough to get people interested and to show that you're organized and thoughtful and have discipline not um, not just, whoa, here's everything I've ever done. You decide what to do with it. Right. Yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. Thank you. That- you can see on my LinkedIn profile, I'm not so, I'm, I'm much more verbose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's where you get to throw everything. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, I don't have that kind of discipline on my LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, one of my favorite, um, the line just right after your name says, asking what if, why not? Mm-hmm. Where, what's the inspiration for that? Again, it, um, yeah, I used to just have my title there, but then I was like, eh, no one knows what that means anyways. <laughs> what, is, what is principal medical research science? Nobody knows what that means. Um, it just sounds really important. It sounds like a, we know you're... I don't know. It doesn't... Yeah. I don't know. No one knows what it means. I don't really... I, I don't do medicine. I don't know. Um and I, no, I was just thinking about what it put there, and they call it your little headline. And I was yeah. like, man, I feel like this is the question that constantly comes up for me when I'm in discussions with colleagues. It's like, well, what if we did that? And why not? And and there's often a really good reason why not. But until that's been articulated, you're lacking information. It's like, yeah, no, seriously, tell me why not. Oh, Okay, now I now I know, and we can pivot. Or like maybe there isn't a good reason why not. Often why not is just like well that's hard. <laughs> Again, I don't want to. Then it comes back to well we're here to solve hard problems. So um, no, that that is it's just I don't know the what if why not. It just 
And then, yeah, I guess it's a little bit of inspiration uh, for me, too. Yeah. I have a little sticker on my laptop next to the touchpad that just says begin anywhere. Because sometimes, again, it's, you know, it's getting that first sentence on the page yeah. or that first data point or whatever that just is enough to get to get you hooked into that flow. Yeah. Yeah. And the hardest part is starting a lot it of It is, man. Like, Finishing so is also hard. Oh, yeah. Starting is <laughs> yeah, 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 hard. Yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know that feeling. Yeah. How much longer do you all have? I mean, and, and you can say two years. Everyone always just says two years. Yeah, a That's, couple, yeah. few years. <laughs> okay, yeah, we're like, you know, we're fourth years plus or minus. <laughs> well, I'm a third oh, year. Oh, you're a third year. You're I'm right. still young. You're right. She's still young and restless. <laughs> And That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, probably a few years. Yeah. I think the average I'm is around two. six. Yeah. Yeah, yeah six is for our... Get it done. Yeah. Yeah, that's the goal. That's what I should have above or saying, a sticker yeah. on my laptop. <laughs> Get, Get her done. done. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one question that we always ask is, what has been a research fail? And I don't know, this could be not necessarily just in research, but... Mm -hmm. Um, sometime where where you're like, man, that yeah. <laughs> that could have gone a lot better. <laughs> yeah, this one was. I was thinking about that too, and um, I was like, man, like I said, I've moved away from doing a lot of hands-on research, but the thing that sticks out to me is like, man, I learned a lesson from that one. Was a project I did a few years ago, and I had. Um, I think one of the things that people underestimate often about people who work in the med device industry or the or just companies in med device is that there's actually a lot of um, really smart people in med device industry and we read the literature like we keep up to date on what's being published we keep up to date with research it's a mm -hmm. part of our jobs and so I had seen this uh, peer-reviewed article published that was um, a semi-objective, semi-subjective rating scale matrix for a, a observation-based scoring of a surgeon using the using the using our device. So right up my alley, I'm like, oh, how are they measuring this? And I read it, and I'm like, eh, we could do better. <laughs> we could, like, there's so much. Like, there's. I looked at it, I'm like, this is an incremental improvement on a previously develop scale and I'm like yeah it's fine I, the, I, the data are great but we could do better and so I spent probably two years working with our internal experts and subject matter experts to develop this other scale it was really well it was really good and then I tested it with like a small but but sufficient sample size I was like up at 5 a.m. in the morning you know, handling pig intestine to set up the lab so people could manipulate the pig intestine and do the thing and all the stuff. And I got the data and I worked with a statistician to crunch the data. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we got some interesting stuff here. And I realized, and I got set to publish it. And I made this huge mistake of not, again, not knowing the audience and not appreciating how hard it was going to be to publish in a clinical journal when you're from industry. Mm. And I just got rejection after rejection. I managed to get it into a conference, and then the year after that, that conference explicitly stopped accepting submissions from industry. Wow. wow. I think because they, um, I kind of threw them for a loop because it was good. Um, and then after that, they're like, oh, we can't have, we, we shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Um, and I just got these rejections where the reviewers flat out said this was an industry-sponsored project. We shouldn't publish it. Okay. So it's more like they might have other, you know, Yeah, they were, concerned, they, they were concerned about bias, even though the project itself was we weren't selling, we weren't promoting. It was very straightforward. Mm -hmm. It was completely replicable. We yeah. weren't using any proprietary information. It was just a project. And... Um, and it bummed me out. I mean, I finally did get it published, but it's pretty much never cited. Uh, it's never used. So I was like, well, shoot, I, it was a good project. I spent mm -hmm. a lot of time on it. I learned a lot. But um, 
I yeah. didn't, and I just didn't um, appreciate how hard it was going to be to publish, and that yeah. you know, and without publishing it, it's just not going to go anywhere. Right. So that was a big learning. What are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics, or I guess medical? Devices. <laughs> you know, again, I was thinking, like, I don't even know what biomechanics is anymore because if I, I, I was like, well, it seems to be, if you, it seems to be, you know, the application of traditional mechanical engineering concepts to biological systems. Mm-hmm. But even like mechanical engineering is expanding or, or engineering. And I think what's really exciting, and I'm sure you've had other guests say this, I'm sure this is nothing new. Is um, the variety like the scale, mm. like getting smaller and smaller, and how do we, you know, how do we get into more like potentially cellular manipulation or understanding cellular or molecular mechanics, mm. um, and just the ability to to scale those insights into larger, you know, at a more macro level, I think is exciting. How do we? prevent problems rather than wait for them to become problems. I was at a conference in Boston a few weeks ago about um, like the, the future of medicine. And one of the things that was really that really stuck in my head was like they said, hey, right now we take this really kind of defensive position against medicine where we wait for there to be a problem. We wait till you need yeah. surgery. Mm-hmm. We wait until you need a medication yeah. to intervene. What if we could just prevent that from ever having to happen? Because we're going to inter- we're going to be able to predict. We're going to be able to predict your whether this type of disability or something is going to happen, and we can just intervene so early that it never happens. Mm-hmm. Isn't that way better than just waiting for there to be a problem? Yeah. So I think that biomechanics could totally have a role in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also that what. I'm using scare quotes of big data, you know, <laughs> whatever that means. But, um, but it's true. I mean, we are in the midst of an exciting and sometimes scary and very gray area of using uh, all sorts of amazing sensors to be able to draw correlations about things that you might never have predicted and to be able to do so reliably and to be able to do really profound analytics, which mm-hmm. is exciting and scary, mm-hmm. I think. Um, one of the speakers I heard recently at, a, at another conference about the future of medicine talks about the digital exhaust that we all put off, basically from all of our devices. Mm-hmm. You know, smart wow. homes, smartphones, we're just creating social media, we're just creating all this data that's just going out there. And it could be, it may be tremendously useful. Wearables, uh, between wearables, your smart home, your smartphone, and your online presence. Yeah. And it's just all stuff you're putting out there, which again, you know, in, 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 the, in some hands could be tremendously useful to be, able, to be able to be like, oh my gosh, you should go see your doctor. Yeah. Um, or it could be used for not so you know, great purposes. So right. But I like your idea time. of being able to track both, yeah, like physical health you can do with wearables, but also mental health mm-hmm. through, yeah, your interactions with social media and, and other things that you're I putting out I think mental there, health is, really is an exciting space. I, I was, I heard about a study where they can, um, I think they had a pretty good rate of diagnosing or, or identifying depression in someone's voice, not because of the content they were saying, but of the waveforms, just like the way they were talking, their speech patterns, wow. rather wow. than their speech content, they were able to wow. identify if someone had depression. Wow. Yeah. I mean, That's again, amazing. we're just making yeah. data yeah. all the time. <laughs> I swear we can do that. Yeah. Like, well, Scott, you know, the yeah. head of the neuromuscular biomechanics lab here, like he talks about like the emotions that we evoke when we walk. Mm-hmm. And like I think that like is an, yeah yeah terrible haven like exactly oh, yeah. I feel exactly. like a comic needs to be made where it's just like oh I'm exhausted from a long day of making so much data <laughs> <laughs> right exactly <Yeah. laughs> 
Now, soon it'll be not a carbon footprint, but like your data footprint. Right? Yeah, actually, I've heard that there's in like will be libraries where you can go. Whoa. Like if if you're not around anymore, somebody who wants to go talk to you can talk oh, to so black mirror. The, like a digital there's a black mirror episode yeah. about that. But this is a podcast where this this man was very a researcher was very serious that this is like something that's happening now that you have a digital presence that can be kind of recreated and people can have conversations with your digital self um, and you'll respond mm-hmm. in ways that 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 you would. I think yeah. I heard that too. I think I heard a researcher, I, I think I know the name, but I don't want to misquote, so I won't say, but it was a man, yeah, he's like, he's building an artificial intelligence of himself mm-hmm. with the idea that after mm-hmm. he's gone, that he'll still be around. Whoa. Yeah. Which Pretty is, which insane. again is like, cool, scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's one of those, like, you want to just, like, be like, that is so amazing, but then something holds you back a little tiny bit. You're like, uh. Well, I think that's another thing that, you know, with, with the future of biomedicine is like, man, ethics. 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 Oh, yeah. That's coming in, in a big way. <laughs> ethics and the law are coming in. Yeah. At, at the Again, at this conference in Boston, they were talking about a lawsuit that was, I don't know if it was in Massachusetts or not, but there was um, a person who had a home health nurse to come in and help them for like four hours a week. Mm-hmm. Well, then the the service providers artificial intelligence or machine learning, whatever. They had an algorithm that said, oh, this person really only needs an hour a week of home health care. Wow. Um, which might which Whoa. might be true according to whatever inputs they're using. But then the family sued, and now it's in court. And all that they're saying, well, our algorithm is proprietary. And as you probably know, a lot of machine learning isn't human interpretable mm-hmm. anyways. So are they suing because they thought they were too often and and like charging them more than they should be or what were they no I think they about? were suing because the the implication was that they were going to lose three hours of care oh okay. and they're like hey how are you justifying okay. this I when see. when it was when we were doing really well with four hours of care how are you justifying this yeah and now it's like well how is what's going to happen yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so it's like, well, we can't show you because it's in that black box. <laughs> or, we, or we don't even know yeah. because yeah. it's the black box. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and maybe they need to retrain their models. I mean, I think that that's the other thing. Like, it's very exciting, all this stuff in machine learning. But how these models are trained mm. is critically important in terms yeah, of absolutely. bias and um, generalizability mm-hmm. of the results. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, if people... Listening, want to follow your work. Um, there's nothing to follow. I don't. There's nothing to follow. <laughs> <laughs> are you on? Are you on like Twitter or anything not, like that? Okay. I'm so I'm socially unmediated. I don't know. I'm not socially <laughs> not on social media. Well, they really. can look on your LinkedIn they can, page. They can look on my LinkedIn page. <laughs> You're gonna get You're a lot of LinkedIn to, messages. I know. That's you know I I'm I'm usually open to doing an informational interview. I cannot guarantee you that I can get you a job. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I appreciate you wanting to get a job. <laughs> you heard that on the air, everyone. <laughs> well, thank you, May. This was a really yeah. great uh, awesome. conversation, and we really appreciate you taking I've, the time. I, I know there wasn't too much of biomechanics in it, but I enjoyed it. No, this <laughs> is <laughs> exactly what Boom is about. Okay, excellent. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So thanks a lot to May for joining us on Boom today. It was really inspiring to hear all her different stories and how open she is to approaching problems just full on, especially the gray ones. Mm. Why not? Do we have a research fail for today? Oh, how did I forget? Last month we heard about a plant biologist, but this month we're going to hear about my friend who's a microbiologist and offered to share her research fail. And she details her first day in lab when she's like trying to make a good impression on everyone. She actually ended up using these really smelly chemicals that she didn't 
know are going to be smelly, and she used them outside of the fume hood, which is where you're supposed to use oh, all, you know, faux pas. Huge <laughs> faux pas. And, you know, it wasn't, like, that subtle because everyone could smell that these chemicals were being used right. in the place where they weren't supposed to. And so her solution was just to, like, ethanol everything everywhere to try to get the smell away, but that actually didn't end up working very well. Mm. And so now her all these new lab mates that she had were just kind of looking at her like annoyed that she had done this but apparently they were really nice about it they helped her clean it up <laughs> told her she should probably use the fume hood next time and she said she went home and slept the rest of the day so i said that sounded like a good use of the rest of the day after that. <laughs> and then they gave her the a nickname day. smelly <laughs> effie <laughs> smelly effie <laughs> and that was how she got her story. No, I don't know. That's always really unfortunate because that smell takes a long time to go away too. Yeah. Even when you do it in the fume hood, if you like accidentally get it on yourself, it's just like this terrible stench. Exactly. I believe, you know, don't quote me because I'm no microbiologist, but I believe they were short chain fatty acids. So if you're using any of those PSA to keep them in the fume hood. Fume hood that stuff. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're just, like, really smelly one day, just, like, sit in the fume hood. Yeah, put yourself in there. If you yeah. didn't shower, you know. PhD life is hard. You don't always have time to shower. You don't. But just, you have time to sit in the fume Do hood. Do everyone a favor. <laughs> you know where you belong. <laughs> you eat too much cheese for lunch? Fume hood. Did you accidentally bring some roasted garlic in fume hood? <laughs> Accidentally step in goose poop on your walk to class. <laughs> Fume hood. hood. It's what they're made for, right? I think. I'm no microbiologist, <laughs> but I think I know how to use a fume hood. A fume hood. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on our episode of Boom. If you'd like to reach out with a research fail, any comments, questions, or suggestions for how to make Boom better, please contact us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com. And you can follow the International Society of Biomechanics on Twitter at ISBiomechanics or on Facebook at the International Society of Biomechanics. You can also follow... Me, personally, on Twitter, at Melissa Boswell underscore. Or me, Hannah O'Day, at Johan Ping. And special thank you to Peter Washington for creating the music for Boom. Biomechanics off our minds. I don't know. How do you say the word? Saphenous or saphenous. So whatever you like. Starts off? Sure. Okay, actually, before we start off, is your last name, is it just Lou or Lee, Lou? How do you it's, say it? It's going to be... Lou is fine. Lou is fine? Yeah, okay, fine. all right. <laughs> we want to be most accurate. <laughs> yeah, we, I probably can't even say it right. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're here with a woman who cannot say her last Pretty name. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs>